A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, starting with verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Good job, guys. <laughs> after the Sabbath, after the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, approached, rolled back the stone, and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were shaken with fear of him and became like dead men. Then the angel said to the women in reply, Do not be afraid. I know that you are seeking Jesus the crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead and he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Then they went away quickly from the tomb, fearful yet overjoyed and ran to announce this to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them on their way and greeted them. They approached, embraced his feet, and did him homage. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The Gospel of the Lord. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This morning, I, I don't know what it is. Um, I mean, I know what it is about Easter Sunday, but there, there is a, um, 
things feel um, strange and different for me personally. I, I uh, wake up in the morning and I sense that something special is happening today. Uh, I don't want to make too much out of it. Christ has always risen from the dead. But there is something about Easter that is really special. In fact, I just am always um, singing along when I wake up on Easter Sunday. I have to sing Keith Green's old song. Hear the bells are ringing, they're singing, Christ is risen. Such, such a great song and super cheesy song too, but, but it's just beautiful. And I can't, I, I, I know that there's newer songs and I know that the, there are cooler songs. <laughs> And, but I'm singing this song, and it, it just comes into my, uh, my head. And then as I'm driving in the car, of course, I had to play it. I think it was my dad had to play that song every Easter morning and just play it over and over and over again. And I just began weeping this morning. And I don't um, – I, it wasn't that I had, like, a really bad week. <laughs> it wasn't that there was a, um, overcome some obstacle or – um, in fact, I don't even know why it moved me so much. Uh, I think part of it is when we live into this story over and over and over again, then it begins to change us in a way that we go, okay, uh, life after resurrection and after the announcement of resurrection in our lives is different. And it's changed us and it's formed us. Um, and so this morning, my prayer, I mean, it's a special day, but we're just going to tell the story today and allow that story to get into our heart and to begin to form us and change everything about who we are. Um, so I want you to hear the good news today, that darkness is not the end, that tears are not the end, that pain is not the end. The God who stands with us in our tears and our pain points us to a promise, the promise. I wonder if you've ever had an experience in your life where you have felt fear and joy at the same time. Think about your life. A time where you've experienced fear and joy at the exact same time. We don't usually put those two things together, do we? It's usually in a time where something incredibly special has occurred. Something from which you know there's no turning back. Life is never going to be the same again. Some of us feel this sense of fear and joy when we walk down an aisle and <laughs> we get married. Uh, it's a sense that nothing will ever be the same, that every day will be marked as after that thing happened. The mix of fear and joy is in delivery rooms every day. The birth of a child is life's greatest mystery. And yet wrapped in that joy is this somber reality that this precious one now breathes the air of a broken world. Will they be loved? Will they make it? Will the world be a hospitable place for them? We experience fear and joy in other times as well. New jobs, cross-country moves, joining a new church, starting a new business. Now, think about that time in your life and hold on to those memories as we reflect on our gospel reading today. In Matthew's resurrection account, we hear that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to go to the tomb. The gospel accounts vary in their details if you've read the different stories of the resurrection. In fact, the apostle Paul tells us that there were many, many people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And it doesn't look they all, like they all sat down and took time to get their story straight <laughs> because there's a lot of different details in the different gospel accounts. 
Some of the gospel accounts include details that others do not include. And you want to go, Matthew, John's got a lot more about this than you do. Is, is, are you missing something here? What's going on? But each of the gospel writers has a specific way they're telling the story. They have an aim. They have a way they want us to hear the story. And so they choose specific details to include or not to include. There's a lot of material to draw from if we really believe that Christ, the risen Christ appeared to this many people. But despite their differences, the four resurrection accounts in the Gospels have a lot in common, too. In all four, the women are shown to be the first witnesses. And Mary Magdalene is named as one witness in the midst of all of them. The Gospel narratives also agree that the revelation of Christ's resurrection began on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. And this is why Christians worship on Sunday rather than on the Jewish Sabbath day is because we've marked this day as the resurrection. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why the women went to the tomb, though the other synoptic gospels tell us that they brought spices. This might be because Jesus' burial was maybe rushed because it took place before the start of the Sabbath on Friday evening. So they're trying to get it kind of the burial done and taken care of, and so they may not have treated it fully or properly as intended. But Matthew just tells us that the women simply came to look at the tomb. They're mourners. They want to be near Jesus. They want to weep. You can imagine the pain that these women and the other followers of Jesus are experiencing. The one in whom you trusted, your love, has died at the hands of the ones you hoped he'd free you from. The story then takes a turn for the dramatic Matthew's account packs a punch. So he says, a violent earthquake happens. Then an angel from heaven who goes to the tomb shows up, rolls back the stone and sits on it. And even the angel's appearance is dramatic. It's like lightning with bright clothing as white as snow. And then it says the guards are freaked out. Let's paraphrase. The guards are freaked out by the whole thing, afraid specifically of the angels. Somehow the angels are fearful to them. So they shake and it says they become like dead men. In the story of God's people, it's really common for angels to show up at important times in history, at pivot points. Angels serve purposes in the Bible, multiple purposes, but one of them is as messengers, bringers of a message. So here, the angel acknowledges the women's fear, and with a phrase that we often hear in the mouth of angels says, do not be afraid. The angel then passes on the message the interpretation of what has happened. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And then there's two instructions. Come and see and go and tell. Come and see and go and tell. Matthew's simple in this way. Now, resurrection was not an unheard of concept in the Jewish world. It was a commonly held belief by the Jewish people at this time, particularly among the Pharisees and the common everyday folks who lived near Jerusalem. They believed that there would be a day when all of God's people would be raised from the dead. In fact, the book of Daniel was really popular at the time. We could say it was on the New York Times bestseller list for several years in the ancient world. But the book of Daniel points to a future resurrection when all of God's people would be raised at the end of time. That was the belief. But Paul tells us Jesus is the first fruits of that expectation. So this thing that we all hope for and long for, all of God's people long for and hope for, this future event has somehow broken into the present. 
revealing God's desire for the world, not just in the future, but here and now. So the Marys do, as the angel said, with fear and great joy. Why both of those things together? The early church father, John Chrysostom, said, They had seen an amazing event. It was beyond all their expectations. The tomb had been empty where they had just before seen him laid. The angel led them to the tomb that they might become witnesses both of his tomb and his resurrection. Okay, now think back on those memories. Those times where you and your life experienced both fear and joy. Why did you feel that thing? What was the context surrounding it? You likely felt fear and joy because you knew that after this thing you were experiencing, after this major event you were in the midst of, nothing would ever be the same again. Now think about what it means to be a Christian, to step into new life in Christ. When we're baptized, we step into Christ's death and resurrection, Paul says. We've experienced the joy of resurrection And that is beautifully terrifying. (laughs) The world is now a different place. The narratives I used to accept about the world, my habits, coping strategies, the ways in which I have become a consumer and a commodity in the world, all of those things are flipped upside down. The world will never be what it was before the resurrection. Have you ever seen those cringy videos online where the Eastern Orthodox priest baptized the baby by slinging them headfirst in the water. <laughs> Anybody ever seen those? Okay, if you haven't seen them, I should show that. No, I'm not, we're going to show a video today. But, the, the, um, but it's really interesting. Like some of it, not all Eastern Orthodox priests, but there's these Eastern Orthodox priests that take the little baby infant and then they just toss them in the water real hard and the baby's screaming and crying and they and and everybody around is going what and it's just flipping it and then they hand it to their parents and then dry it off real quick and then they move on with their lives and you look at it and at first you go whoa whoa as a parent you go whoa 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 what's happening here (laughs) and yes we don't do that here um we gently pour water on babies' heads comforting them all the way along but there is something to that because baptism is a rude awakening Being a Christian, for all of its ultimate beauty, is unsettling. It's not comfortable. This is what Paul is getting at in our epistle reading. Because of the resurrection, everything has changed. Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ. That's what happened when you were baptized. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is reminding the Christians they have been raised with Christ. They have access to God. Their lives are hidden with Christ in God. Now, setting our minds on things above, what does that even mean? How do you do that? Setting our minds on things above is the process of turning our attention away from that which belongs to the present world of change and decay and turning them towards things which are part of God's new world. This involves being vigilant, paying attention, being aware of what is going on in the world and in our lives. I want to suggest today we're faced with two competing temptations at the same time. On one hand, we are tempted to just go with the flow 
If we're not looking closely, we can get swept up into how the world defines the good life, what it means to, be, to have a good life and be happy in the world. We can just get swept up into those narratives, into those stories. This is attractive because as Christians, we living in a world, we want our Christian life to fit in nicely with the rest of everybody else, right? We don't want it to be too difficult or too hard. We want to avoid challenge or cognitive dissonance. At the same time, there's a counter temptation, and that's legalism. Legalism is rigidly following a set of rules and regulations and thinking that that's Christianity. Just about following the rules. That's really all it is. Legalism is attractive to us because sometimes we're drawn to concrete things. We want easy answers. We want black and white, clear, this is exactly what it's supposed to be. But neither of those, neither going with the flow nor legalism is what Paul has in mind here. Resurrection is something altogether different. We don't go with the flow and we don't blindly follow concrete rules. We follow Jesus. Christians are called to intentionally live now in a way that anticipates God's future world when Christ will return and all will be made right. And this requires paying attention, requires cultivation and vigilance. And this has implications for every part of our life. Another thing that this means is new life in Christ is not withdraw from the earth or turning away from the concern for life here on this earth. When it says things above, it's not saying, hey, focus on the more like floaty, spiritual, supernaturally things. No, that's not what it's saying. The things above are the values and desires and behaviors that reflect Christ's lordship over the cosmos. These values and behaviors will be lived out in this world, not detached from this world. So Paul reminds the people of who they are, already are in Christ. You already are this way. You already have new life. In fact, you have everything you need. And any conversation about behavior, which Paul has later on, must begin with what God has done, not with what we do. This is who you are because God has acted upon you. Now, if you're new here, you probably notice we perform certain liturgical actions here. We make the sign of the cross. We have processions, we have bowing, right? These things are rooted in history, um, but we get that in many, you know, a lot of churches here in the South, especially new churches, that these things are not usually practiced, right? So for some of us, they're a little foreign. They may not be part of our tradition. It is so important that we be reminded that we do these things because we believe they form us in a particular way. They point us to an embodied faith a faith that's lived out with our lives and even with our bodies. But they do not give us more of God. No. As a Christian, you died with Christ and you were raised with him. You have a new identity, and that is all that is necessary to be part of this new life. At best, these practices help us live as the people we already are. That's the only point. Something has changed in our world and has changed in our lives, and that means everything changes. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, once described the human plight as a misdirection of the senses. Human beings, he said, have turned their eyes no longer upward, but downward. 
They were seeking about God in nature and in the world of sense, feigning gods for themselves. But he says human beings are delivered from this plight as they join in the death and resurrection of Christ. And spiritual formation, this thing that we call spiritual formation, or call it discipleship or sanctification, all kinds of different things, is simply getting our lives or standing, allowing God to form us in a way that is in line with that new identity that he has given us. Now, Paul says this life in Christ is hidden. That doesn't mean it's private. It doesn't mean nobody's supposed to know that you're a Christian. But hidden means that the results of this new life are not always going to be obvious because they're not going to look like the ways of the world. The life of faith is not the calling to win every day, right? It's not to become upwardly mobile. Yeah, if you follow Jesus, everything's just going to come up roses for you in the world. Your career's going to take off. You're going to get checks in the mail. That's not the promise of the gospel, no. It can't be measured by worldly standards. Living Christianly is about recognizing faith is a struggle. Christian virtue is a struggle. And this is so different from what is often instinctual for us. Our faith is hidden. Like a seed planted in the ground, the tree is not yet obvious, but it's growing. We can trust in that. And being Christian will first play itself out in the little things, the daily things. Eugene Peterson writes, but if the Christian life means anything at all, it finally has to get into the world of what we do between waking and sleeping, into the realm of routine, ordinary speech, habitual responses, casual reactions. The Christian has already been joined to Christ, shares in the life of the risen Lord, and because this is true, we desire to live as he has created us to live. Interestingly, in our gospel reading, as the women are told to go to Galilee to meet Jesus, so the angel says to the women, go to Galilee and meet Jesus there along with the other disciples. And right after they're told this, Jesus shows up right there with them. So it raises the question, so were the angel and Jesus not on the same page? Like, did they not coordinate where they were going to be at different times? And how do you communicate that? Is there a heavenly group chat that they all decide where they're going to be at different times? Couldn't they have figured out the timing on all of that? What's going on here? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us why the angel mentions Galilee and then Jesus shows up right there at the tomb with the women. It's likely that the women play a unique role here. They are the first witnesses. The women are the preachers to the preachers, the witnesses to the witnesses. The test, now, at this time in the first century, the testimony of women was not highly regarded in Palestine. It wasn't actually highly regarded in the broader Mediterranean world either. So if you lived at this time and you were to invent a story of resurrection, so you created something kind of out of whole cloth about the resurrection, insisting that women were the first witnesses wouldn't have actually helped your case very, very well because they just weren't. Uh, their, their testimony, unfortunately, because of the broken culture, was not valued. Craig Keener suggests the gospel writers have a theological reason for preserving the testimony of these women. He says, the narrative demonstrates that those of whom society thinks are the least are often those whom God sends with his message. John Chrysostom writes, through these women, he brings good hope, and the healing of that which was diseased. 
We have to acknowledge today the ways in which the roles and testimonies of women have been discounted, not only in the first century Mediterranean world, but in other times throughout history and even in our time. The Christian faith often serves as a prophetic challenge to the ways in which our cultures operate, to whom we look to for truth and meaning. So it raises the question for us, which voices do we listen to? Which have we been unwilling to listen to? Of whom have we been suspect? These might be the very people who actually speak the truth to us. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we're given two reports side by side. So there's this report from the women, and then in verses 11 through 15, the guards give a testimony. They say that Jesus' body has been stolen. So Matthew puts these two reports right in front of us and says, which one are you going to believe? Are you going to be the, believe the women's truth, or are you going to believe this lie? When Jesus does eventually show up to the disciples in far away Galilee, so we're here in the tomb, right? And then far away in Galilee, he appears, and he, his appearance to the women ahead of time at the tomb is a natural bridge, that this is the one who really died. He really died and was really buried, and then he really rose from the dead. In fact, John Chrysostom says the angel is not afraid to call Jesus the crucified in this passage. He says, are you looking for Jesus the crucified? For it is chiefly by his crucifixion that he blesses. In our Old Testament reading, the prophet Jeremiah promises a new day for Israel, a turning of the page, a new covenant. But it's so tough because the rest of Jeremiah, if you read it, is really dark. And Israel's gone through a lot of really difficult stuff. Israel has just felt complete and total abandonment by God. It seemed, and it was true to their experience, that God's people were cut off by him. And this new statement about building and restoration doesn't change that thing that's happened in the past. This is what we see in the angel calling Jesus the crucified one. He really died. And he bears the scars. The resurrection does not cancel Christ's death as if it never happened. It's not a way to skirt around the crucifixion. That's one of the things that seems like we try to do when we say, oh yeah, I know it's dark now, but Sunday's coming. We just kind of push off the pain and pretend it doesn't exist. No, that's not what the resurrection's about. Jesus' death on behalf of the world is a real and true thing, and Easter doesn't deny that. But the resurrection is what provides the basis of new life, new creation, a way forward. What scars do you have today? What is it that you've been through? As we come to the table in just a few minutes, we're invited to bring that, not to pretend it doesn't exist. Because your pain and your hurt and your suffering and mine is real. And we can trust that in the hands of Christ. When they see him, the women embrace Jesus. They cling to his feet, it says, and they worship him. And of course, this is the calling of the Christian. We're a worshiping people. God is with us and God is near. The church historically believed that whenever we worship, 
Whenever we receive of the body and blood of Christ, the risen Christ is really present with us. So today is not just an intellectual exercise. In fact, it's not primarily an intellectual exercise. We're not just fondly remembering something. Christ is here. Christ is with us. John Chrysostom says this, and I love it because it could be a Pentecostal altar call from the first century. Okay, here's what he says. Some of you may desire to be like these faithful women. You too may wish to take hold of the feet of Jesus. You can, even now. You can embrace not only his feet, but his hands and even his sacred head. You too can today receive these awesome mysteries with a pure conscience. You can embrace him not only in this life, but even more fully on the day when you shall see him coming with unspeakable glory with a multitude of the angels. John Chrysostom says you can even now, today. And that means just as you are. God calls you to embrace and to worship. Everything has changed. Exile is over. And also, even after Jesus appears to the women, the call is once again, they're told twice, not to stay there, but to go. The women are not called to just bask in his presence. This is not merely about a new spiritual experience. They're witnesses. And their witness, joined with the witnesses of the disciples in Galilee, begins to form a community of witness, a people bound together by the presence and commissioning of the risen Christ. We believe that Christ is with us in the body and blood. And if that's really true, the question is, why not just stay here all the time? <laughs> Christ is with us in the body and blood. Why don't we just all kind of live here, just hang out here? What is that? Because the resurrection changes everything, not just us in this room. It's not a mere inward experience. The world is now a different place. And the call is to go and to bear witness to follow the risen Christ into the places of chaos and brokenness and to be a community of witness. On Easter Sunday, we are reminded that resurrection changes everything. In the midst of the grief and pain, betrayal and violence of the world, Christians boldly proclaim, this is not all that there is. The tomb is empty. Restoration is real. So much of the Christian life is the call to embrace the risen Christ here and now. He is with us. We're invited to the table to worship him, to know him, to love him. And at the same time, so much of the Christian life is also about the going, the ways in which we become the sacrament, the witness, and become a community of witness to what has happened. Come and see. Go and tell. Amen.